Thank you, man. Appreciate that. Take your Bible, Genesis 49. We are one chapter away from finishing our story, the story of Joseph. We've called a life in God's hands. We've seen God direct and guide and protect Joseph all along the way. And we're close to the end here, Genesis chapter 49 today. Genesis 49. Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline to the message, if that helps you keep track of where we are. I also mentioned that I, uh, every Friday morning, I send out my outline in digital form to about 15 or so people who like to have a digital copy. If that's you, if you like to use a tablet or something like that and prefer to have a digital copy of the outline instead of the paper copy, feel free to email me. I'd be happy to add you to my list. Genesis 49. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just do things? Sometimes he uses people instead. It's an amazing thing that God chooses to use people to accomplish his purposes. God does that on purpose. God could just snap his fingers and bring something into existence. God could snap his fingers and bring something to pass. He has done that in the past. We see that in Scripture, that God spoke and the worlds came into existence. God chose to create the world. But the pattern of history, the pattern of the Scripture, the pattern uh, God has given us is that God uses flawed people to accomplish his program. It's an amazing truth. And God uses us as flawed people. The story that begins in your Bible, the book of Genesis, begins in the garden with man's, well, God's perfect creation, then man's sin, and then a promise of a Savior who would come, Genesis 3, tells of a Savior who will come and will overthrow the serpent, will destroy sin, and will overturn the curse that was brought about by our sin. We have Genesis 49 as a unique chapter in Joseph's stories, because in Joseph's story, because in this case, Jacob, Joseph's father, is on his deathbed. He calls the sons to him, and he is going to bless them and tell them about what God has told him, their futures, what God has planned for them. The title of the message is Seeing the Future. And we see that in many ways what we're going to see this morning as a chapter looks back. It's a little bit of a retrospective of their life. He says, here's what you did. Here was something that identifies your character, something that identifies your, your weaknesses, your strength, your behaviors. But th- this chapter is much more than that. It's Jacob's God-enabled prophecy, inspired prophecy about his sons who had gone to be the heads of the tribes of Israel. God gave Jacob, Israel here, special insight into his son's character. He revealed to them what would become of them. And while the future is a mystery to me, it's a mystery to you, it's not a mystery to God. God knows what's going to happen. God can see the future. Nothing takes God by surprise. Not a single thing that's happened this past week or this past month, this past year, this past decade has taken God by surprise. God has a plan for you no matter who you are. God has plans for his people. God has plans for his people. And the brothers here were a blend of good guys and bad guys. They were honorable and dishonorable. Yet God had a word and a plan for each of them. And God would use these brothers to accomplish his purposes. If I could have you leave anything today remembering that God has a purpose and God has a plan. And God uses people to accomplish his plan for his purposes. And the message today, we're going to look at a prophecy about sons. We're going to learn some things about God. We're going to learn some things about the God of Jacob. We're going to be filled with faith and awe for the God that we serve and the God who's in these pages of Scripture. Father, we ask today 
that you please help us to be filled with this awe and wonder and respect and fear of you. Because you have a purpose and you have a plan, and you have a plan for all of us, and you had a plan for each one of these brothers that was laid out clearly and then manifest and realized in, in real time throughout Scripture and then in the coming of Christ. And we thank you for laying out your predictions and then fulfilling these predictions. We know that, Lord, you have made many promises to us that we trust. And so may we have confidence and respect and awe for you today. May we think about your character and your greatness as we bow our hearts and heads before you this morning. Lord, we dedicate this time to you. We come to you knowing that without your spirit, we cannot understand what you have before us. And we come with awe of you and very, very much aware of our inability to understand you without your power. So God, please work this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three uh, sections to our message this morning. Divided it up a little bit. You'll notice we'll start with the first one there. We'll look at these brothers uh, here at the end of his life. Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob is gathering his sons to him so he can bless them. He's already blessed Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And now he has plans for the tribes of Israel. He's going to use these tribes to form the foundation for a nation through whom the law would come and through whom Messiah would come. And God would do all this through the unique tribal organization of the nation of Israel. Look at me in verse 1. It says, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. God is going to reveal to Jacob the future for his sons and God's plan for them so that Messiah might come through them. Look with me at the very beginning. We see that God sees the heart. God can see what we cannot see. And one by one, Jacob's going to address the family members. He's going to address the members of this dysfunctional family. If you had to structure the blessings, it seems that they're structured by first he deals with the sons of Leah, then with the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah, and lastly with the sons of Rachel. Remember that Jacob had two wives, and those two wives had handmaidens, and he had sons by those handmaidens and by his wives. We talked about this in Genesis 37, that Joseph was indeed born into a dysfunctional family. And here at the end of his life, Jacob is going to summarize the essence of their character, what made each one of them unique. Uh, sometimes when we reflect on the past, he points them to their future, and with each one, God shows that he can see the heart. First, we'll look at Reuben in verses 3 and 4. We see Reuben here as the oldest. He's the firstborn. We've seen Reuben pop up a couple times so far. When Joseph was being sold into slavery, it was Reuben's idea not to kill Joseph. He says, let's throw him in a pit, and we'll come back. And his idea was, I'll, I'll come back later once their hot heads have cooled off. I'll come back and fetch him out of the pit and, and return him home. But when the brothers, um, but he finds out, of course, the brothers and sell Joseph into slavery, and he's angry that he comes back, the pit is empty. Then, then we know that when, when Joseph is in Egypt and, and the brothers are going down to buy grain from Egypt, uh, Reuben here tells his father that he'll, he'll make sure Benjamin's safe. In fact, he'll make sure Benjamin's so safe that if, if Benjamin does not come back, that Jacob can, t- can kill his two sons. That's, that's not, a great, uh, not a great place to be in. Reuben is, is, is kind of a hothead. He's a little bit of an of a, uh, impulsive person. We get an image of Reuben as a strong leader, but also as foolish. That's why we say Reuben is one who had squandered potential. Reuben was one with squandered potential. He starts out with privilege in verse 3. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. 
my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Reuben was one who had great privilege and potential. He has here the beginning, the might of his strength, the firstborn, the oldest son. Notice these other words describing Reuben. It says excellency. Literally here, this word means an excess of. He has more than he needs of dignity and of power. Reuben has got all the advantages of starting well, but there is a world of a difference between starting well and finishing well. And Reuben had all the advantages of life, but there is also accountability here in that he squandered his privilege. Notice verse 4. He had a lot of potential, but it says this, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. All the potential of Reuben's future was squandered because of his lack of self-control. Reuben was a man of ungoverned impulses. He, the story in Genesis 35 and verse 22, I have it on the screen behind me, that, that Reuben went to his father's bedroom. He went to his father's bed and he slept with one of his father's concubines, his mother's handmaid. It says it happened. Israel dwelt in the land. Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. His inability to restrain himself and his sin here by going into his father's wife or his father's concubine shows his lack of control. He was unstable as water. Think about that amazing image. It's like always shifting, always adapting, unable to stand under its own strength. If you tried to hold water in your hands, it goes through your hands. You can't form it into anything unless you have containers. Your water is ungovernable. It gets owes its own way. It cannot be built upon. You don't want to build upon water. You, you have to build upon a rock. And here he is weak here. His lusts, his lusts and his desires are his weakness. He has a, a real future that was, that was great potentially, but squandered. The second uh, two brothers he gives here, the third, actually the third, second and third brothers, Simeon and Levi, we sing their character here as those who are full of anger and cruelty. I want you to see these verses because um, this, this prophecy combines these two brothers. They, they, they were probably uh, uh, went around together. They were good friends together. And, 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 and while Reuben's prophecy is, is positive and then negative, these two are all negative. Notice verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These are two violent men. Two violent men, it says, in their anger they slew a man. Genesis chapter 34 tells us a story of Dinah who, who, was, uh, who was raped. She was a, a, a sister of theirs who was raped. In order to take a vengeance on them, they engaged in all kinds of violence again against her uh, abusers, and they engaged in massive amounts of violence. And, but there was not just regular violence or justice. These men were involved in cruelty. Notice the image of hamstringing an ox. There's no reason to do that other than to make it unable to function, unable to walk. The hamstring an ox shows their cruelty in slaying a man. Their pride was in slaying and killing people. And the result of this in verse 7 tells us that they would be divided, there would be a division in the scattering here. And this is fulfilled in two different ways. Number one, Simeon as a tribe became integrated into the tribe of Judah and lost its identity. 
as a unique tribe. Secondly, the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe, and they were not allotted their own division of land. They were scattered among the other tribes and lived among the other tribes as part of their punishment, in a sense. They were not allowed to have their own land. They were among the others. We even see the kinds of violence here uh, laid throughout the Scripture. The, The Levites never given their own territory, Simeon losing his identity, anger and cruelty identify these two. If we keep going, we see, if you skip down to verse 13, we see uh, Zebulon and Issachar, and I've labeled these two as short-sightedness or short-sighted foolishness. These two are confronted or they're rebuked for exchanging God's best for short-term benefit. We have riches in verse 13 of Zebulun. He, he shall dwell by the haven of the sea, shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. He is, he is near the ships or near the, near the ocean. He's involved in lots of trade. He becomes a haven for ships, but he's near a place called Sidon, which if you know that is a, is a place of Baal worship. And, and like a lot who looked on the land and saw the fertile land and was attracted to wealth and prosperity and got sucked into that, so Zebulun here is mildly rebuked, but Issachar even more so. Look at verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey laying down between two burdens. He saw that the rest was good and the land was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Here's a strong donkey. That's not a good nickname, but it is what he's called. And what the picture is actually, if you've ever had an animal carry uh, belongings on both sides of it, he, he's carrying, he's got like this, um, this saddle bags, if you will, across his back, and he's carrying a burden. And as he carries, it says he decides to lie down between the two burdens. He has a job to do, but he fails to do it. He fails to carry it. He decides to quit because he would rather rest. It says he would lie down between burdens because he saw the rest was good and he saw that the land was pleasant and he lost sight of God's best for him and became short-sighted and foolish. And what's the result of Issachar's foolishness? It says that he becomes a slave. He becomes enslaved to other nations because of his short-sighted folly. We keep going, we see Dan. Dan has a missed, what I've called a missed calling. Notice first how Dan is described. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so his rider shall fall backwards. He has a high calling to be a judge for the people. Of one of the tribes, this is a noble calling. He is going to be a judge. But notice what happens to him. Instead of being a, a noble judge, what does he do? <clears throat> he becomes a treacherous person. He's like a, like a snake. Again, I, I've never ridden a horse with snakes nearby, but, but if, if you were to be riding a horse and there's a snake that jumps up, it says, and, and bites at the horse's heels, what's the, what's the problem with that? You're going to get thrown from your horse, right? It, it's like, a, it's like this, it's, it's, he's, he's understated, he's un, unexpectedly treacherous. And here Dan is one who is widely known to be treacherous. It was Dan and Beersheba, that the alternative worship sites were set up by, by King Jeroboam. We have, in fact, in Revelation 7, we have a listing of the tribes at the end of times in Revelation 7, verses 5 through 8. Guess who does not have a name listed among the tribes? Dan. Dan had a missed opportunity, a missed calling. In verse 19, we have another positive prophecy from Gad. And it says that here he has endurance despite being fa- facing opposition. It says, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, 
but he shall triumph at last. It's really hard to see this in the English language, but there's a lot of wordplay on the name Gad because Gad, it says, a troop, that word is Gadod. So Gad, a Gadod, shall trample you. That word also is the word Gadu, uh, it's Yagaduninu. That kind of sounds kind of funny, but that is the same consonants, Gad, in there, and he will triumph. Yagud, it's again, Gad is the, the consonants there in the future. He's saying that he will undergo turmoil, but he will not be overcome. He will face opposition, but he will endure. It's a great, great um, prophecy here. A couple more. We have Asher and Naphtali, and they have wealth and prosperity. In fact, Asher means blessed, and we have some kids here named Asher. We have a couple kids here named Asher. You know, your name means happy or blessed. So when you're grumpy, you're not being very Asher. You're right? You, to be happy, to be blessed. The first word we read this morning, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Asher is the first word in that Hebrew psalm. Blessed is the man, happy is the man. And he says here, bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Asher is rich. He's producing food for kings. But there is actually an undercurrent here, a little bit of warning, because royal dainties here can indicate that he's giving food. He's providing food for Canaanite kings in the area. He's so rich that he doesn't mind giving food and provisions to those who hate God. There's an undercurrent of that there. It's not super obvious. But Naphtali is like a deer going wherever she wants to go, frolicking wherever she wants to be. They were a mountain people known for their freedom, known for their independence. They keep their character. They're not going to be bound up. They use beautiful words. They are who they are, Asher of Naphtali. And then lastly, we see in verse 27, go all the way down to 27, we see Benjamin and his violent aggression. Notice this picture of Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour his prey, at night he shall divide the spoil. Benjamin was a violent man who raised a violent tribe. We see examples of Benjamin's violence at the end of the book of Judges, which I believe a lot of you just studied in your Sunday school. You remember the tribe of Benjamin was very much involved, Judges uh, 17 through 20 or something like that, right in that area. There's a bunch of stuff about Judges, but especially about Benjamin and their tribe. He was a violent man. And as Jacob spoke all these words to summarize all of these, it's obvious that God can see his heart. God can see man's heart. God, God sees what makes each one of these men who they are, and you cannot hide who you are from the Lord. God sees your heart. God knows who you are. You can pretend like you're one thing to man, but, but you can't pretend to God. God can peel back all of the layers of makeup and all the layers of clothing and all the layers of things that we do to make ourselves who we are not. And he says, this is who you are. God sees the heart. But secondly, there's another undercurrent of application in this passage, and that is this. Your behavior will impact the lives of your children. Your, your choices today will impact the lives of your kids. Your children will not be held guilty or for your sins. The Bible is very clear that, that every man will die for his own sins. But your children will face consequences, both natural and supernatural, for your choices, and that ought to terrify you. 
The scripture lays that out very clear. He says, to those who rebel against God, God sends his judgment down several generations. Not that they are guilty for that sin, but they face natural consequences. How many of us have not seen this be the case? We know people who have lived lives of debauchery and their children have suffered the consequences of that sin. And often their grandchildren have suffered the consequences of that sin. You are not an island to yourself. Everything you do has downstream implications for your life and for your children's lives. Everything you see in these men's lives, the choices they made, had long-term impact. May this be a motivation for us and the directions we take our families. We have to live carefully knowing that decisions we make now do have a downstream impact. Number one, God sees the heart. Number two, I want you to see, as you look at the life of Joseph, that God protects his own. Look at verse 22. Much of Joseph's life has been in God's hands to this point, but God was not finished with him yet. God had more plans for Joseph. No matter how much God had, Joseph had experienced God's blessing, God had more for him. Number one, in verse 22, we see prosperity. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. What a picture here. A picture of one who had the presence of God, the fruitfulness of a massive tree branch that's hanging with fruit that is nearby a well, a place where there's lots of water. That's why we read, uh, that's why we read Psalm 1 at the beginning of the, of the service today. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season's leaf, shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Prosperity was here and in order for Joseph. Now, I want you to think about this from their, from their perspective. Joseph had been living in poverty in Egypt. He had lived as a slave and then as a prisoner, and only at the very end of his life was he exalted to be sitting with Pharaoh. He had been living as a slave with nothing. His brothers had been living as part of the patriarchal family with oxen and goats and sheep and cattle and a lot of wealth. And it's Joseph who is called out to be the one who's going to be prosperous. God's prosperity is greater than man's prosperity. God's blessing and his prosperity come in God's timing and in God's definition. He defines what prosperity is. He is the one who flourishes and extends this. It doesn't stop at the bough and the fruit. Notice this phrase, the vines and the branches run over the wall. There's, a, there's just an overflow of prosperity. But the prosperity would not be without difficulty. There is needed protection in verse 23. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. This is like there are people from far away who hate Joseph, who are desiring to kill him, and all this hatred, he would still be protected. He could face these archers despite their hatred for him. He would succeed. He would be protected from danger because he would be blessed. There would be a blessing from God in verse 24. He says, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hand were made strong. Notice the repetition of the word blessing. By the hand of the mighty God of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty, that's Shaddai, who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. God's hands made him strong. He calls God the shepherd and the stone. 
the one who guides the sheep, the one who is that solid rock. Joseph was separated from this family and these blessings that came to pass, but notice who was responsible for blessing Joseph. The God of your fathers, the Almighty, the one who will bless you with children and bless you with blessings. Now, I want you to notice something really important. If you look with me in verse 26, I want you to look at Jacob's statement. The blessings of your father, he says, have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. In Genesis 47, I'm putting this up on the screen like this so you can see these together. In Genesis 47, when Jacob meets Pharaoh, he tells Pharaoh this. Pharaoh says, how is your life? How old are you? And Jacob volunteers this. He says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Notice the description of his life. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. Here's what he's saying. My life's been a failure. I've not been nearly as productive as my father, my grandfather. I had big shoes to fill, and I failed. How would you like to grow up in the family where Abraham's your grandfather and Isaac's your dad? And you're Jacob, that rascal Jacob. And, and, and you look at your life, and you're saying to yourself, I have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. Discouraged, depressed, anxious. But in giving this blessing to Joseph, I want you to notice the change in 49.26. The blessings of your father, who's that? Him. He's speaking to Joseph here. The blessings of your father have excelled, have gone beyond the blessings of my ancestors. What's he saying there? I am more blessed than my father and grandfather. I am more blessed than they are. He has had a change, a change of perspective. His attitude has been completely changed. He is the shepherd. God is the shepherd who gives us prosperity, protection, and blessing. Who can forget Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, you comfort me, they prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Warnings in the first point, be careful what you do, your family will have result from that, but these are blessings, blessings, riches, and bounty always come from our God. He will protect his own. I want you to see as we go into this last point, as we look at Judah's life, that God saves through his Messiah. Judah becomes the most important person in Joseph's story, which is very interesting to me because think about how Judah started the story. He was a prophet-seeking brother who asks, why are we going to kill Joseph when we can sell him and make money? And the very next chapter, Judah, after his wife dies, goes into a foreign country, sleeps with a prostitute, turns out to be his daughter-in-law, and sires two sons that way. In confronting Tamar in the open square, he demands that she be killed, and when they point out that he is the father, he says, she has been more righteous than I. We start to see a change in this man's life. Later, when his brothers are taken and Benjamin is going with them to Egypt. Judah tells his father, unlike Reuben, if I don't bring back Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. 
Judah says, if Benjamin does not come back, you can have my life. I will give my life. In fact, it's Judah who takes the lead to Joseph and explains their situation to this Egyptian official he does not know is his own brother. We see growth in Judah from a prophet-seeking, self-centered man to someone who's willing to sacrifice his own life so his father would not die. It might surprise you when you start reading this story in Genesis 37 that God chooses to use this man, this flawed man, as the line through whom Messiah and the kingdom would come. It would be through Judah that the kingdom would be established. It would be through Judah that Messiah would come. It would be through Judah that God saves us in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at these pictures here as we see Judah's strength from God. If we go back to Judah's blessing, verse 8, notice that Judah is commended for his strength which comes from God. Judah, you are he who your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall rouse him. He's recognized by others around him as being strong. Everyone sees his strength. He has strength over his enemies. He can conquer them in battle. His brothers recognize the strength. He's described as a young lion, one who has prey, one who is at rest, one who has so much strength that people are afraid to rouse him. This is partially why we see in the book of Revelation that in the coming of Christ, he is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah is a lion. When you look at the description of Jesus as the root of David, that is from Isaiah 11.1, he is described as one who comes from the kingly line of Judah and of David. If we keep going, we see that his kingship is from God. In verse 10, the promise here, the scepter, the sign of rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of of the people. The scepter is the instrument of rule. It's the, it's the symbol of, of authority, and this will not leave the kingly line. There will come a king from Judah's line who will rule and reign forever, and God's promise of a coming kingdom will be, it says, until Shiloh comes. Now, some of your Bibles might have a note there or might have a, a, a translation, alternate translation. This is a fascinating phrase. If you, if you ask yourself, what is Shiloh? Who is Shiloh? Is this a thing? Is it a place? A better translation, there's an alternate way of translating this, which says, until he possesses that which belongs to him. In other words, a lawgiver shall not, from between his feet, until what is his comes. Until what belongs to him comes. There is something that belongs to Judah, and it is coming. It's a throne. It's a dominion. It's a reign where Jesus Christ will reign. I believe this is like we're referring to the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived, and they what? Reigned with Christ for a thousand years. When the rest of the dead who did not live again until the thousand years were finished, the first resurrection, blessed and holy is he who has come, who is part of the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, rule, reign as kings. He is this king, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. He shall reign forever. 
and ever. And his justice is from God. Verse 11, uh, this is a very enigmatic, very difficult to understand image. He says, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now, binding your donkey to a vine, again, I don't know how many of us here have donkeys, not many probably, but if you were to do that, it's an image of allowing your animal to eat whatever he wants. You, you wouldn't, if you bind your animal to a vine, he's going to sit there and eat the grapes. And that's the picture. He, he can just eat however much he wants. He can be full. It's a picture of being so completely nourished, but it's also a picture of not having to worry about your donkey eating your grapes. You, can, you have enough. But there's another picture here. There's, there's opulence. He says, notice, he washed his garments in wine. If you have enough money to wash your garments in wine, that means you're very, very wealthy. But what happens when you wash your garments in wine is they turn red. And the picture, actually, I believe what's going on here is this is not really a picture of opulence as much as it's a picture of justice. That is, he executes justice on the wicked. And there's pictures of this, of Christ coming and executing justice on the wicked, so much so that as he executes justice, what happens to the color of his garment? In fact, we're told Jesus, when he came in his first coming, comes in mercy. He comes in mercy to us, but his second coming will not be like that. His second coming will be a coming of justice. And friends, we have painted Christ, many of us have painted Christ in this very soft light, we need to understand that we're worshiping the one who will come with justice, as it says in Isaiah 63. Notice the picture of Christ in his second coming. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red in your garments like one who treads the winepress? He responds, I have treaded the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in mine anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. It's important we understand Jesus not only as a suffering servant, but also as the one who will bring justice. And it is good that he brings justice. He is a righteous Reign. We cannot lose sight of Messiah's future reign. It's a reminder that we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It ought to keep us on our knees before him. It ought to keep us aware of that. Notice as he concludes these blessings in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father spoke to them. As he blessed them, he blessed each one of them according to his own blessing. But if you were keeping track of our verses, you'll notice that in the middle of these blessings, in the middle of these prophecies, there's a small little verse that we skipped. And that is verse 18. And I printed it at the bottom of your outline. Because in the middle of all these prophecies, Jacob exclaims something. He says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. He recognizes that although he is predicting the work of of his sons, Yahweh is the one who saves. I have waited for your salvation, O 
Lord. God sees our heart. God can see your heart. What does your future hold? Unless you come to Christ in faith, we are all estranged from him. We are all in our own sin. We all need to be saved. No one, listen carefully, no one is born in good standing with God. There's no such thing as I've always been a Christian. You've never always been a Christian. No one is born in good standing with God. God sees your heart. God knows whether you have been converted and trusted him as your Savior. He knows your need today. Number two, God protects his own. When you accept Christ as your Savior, you're adopted into the family of Christ. You're made one of his children. As a child of God, you're given protection by God. You're given a new purpose, a new calling. You're given a new identity. God protects his own. He promises that. Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? None of these things. And God, God saves through his Messiah. We ought to be rejoicing in the fact that the Messiah that would come through Judah as prophesied was the Lord Jesus Christ. He came on earth and he lived a perfect life 2,000 years ago. He died a perfect death and he paid the penalty for sin that we all deserve. There's not a single sin that I've committed or that you've committed that Jesus did not die for. And he died for them so that by faith you can trust in him. He was not just the Jewish Messiah. These prophecies were given to the Jewish family, the 12 tribes. He came as a savior of the world. He died for the sins of the world, not just for the sins of the Jewish people, not just for us. He died for everyone, so then rose from the dead so that your sins were paid for and you can be saved by believing in him. And he says, this isn't the end of the story. The Bible tells us, and we believe that he comes he came and he will come again. He will rule and reign. His kingship was established from God. We have the promise that one day he will rule on the throne of David forever and ever. Amen. We serve a living God. We serve a risen Messiah. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And the story that began in the Garden of Eden continued through Jacob's sons, went all the way through Christ and the cross and the tomb that was empty and is here today. And one day Jesus will come back and he will, be and he will, he will come back and he will claim us as his own and he will establish his kingdom and we can look forward to that day. And it begins in seed form in the blessings of Judah to his sons. God uses people. God uses regular ordinary, frail, weak people to accomplish his purpose. To turn this back to you, will you be used by God to do his purpose? Will you fall in line and do what God has called you to do? Will you be a servant of the Lord? Will you serve him with your whole heart? Father, we ask today that you please, please take us as we are and use us for your glory. We know that no man can see what's going on inside of our hearts. We could put on a good front. We could pretend well. But Father, we know that you can see through all of that, and you know us. We thank you for the plan that you established at creation. We thank you for the plan you established here, or you communicated here through this prophecy. And we pray, Lord, as we live our lives, that we would recognize you have a plan for us, too. With every head bowed and every eye, clo every eye closed, I want to ask you this morning, do you need to come to Christ in salvation? Do you need to be converted? Friend, maybe today is the day you need to recognize you are not standing where you ought to be with God. You are not in good standing with the Lord. You are instead going to face his wrath for your sin because you've never trusted Christ to take your sins for you. Perhaps you thought you could earn your way to heaven or by being a good person you could convince God that you're worthy. Friend, you'll never be worthy. There was only one who was worthy, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And it's through his perfect life and perfect death that we can have redemption. If that's you this morning, I'd love for you to come to know Christ today. By confessing your sin, saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know you died for my sins. Please forgive me of that. And by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior, by saying, Lord Jesus, I know that you have died for my sins. You were buried and rose again for me. And by receiving that gift, and by saying, yes, Lord, I receive that gift today, I want that applied to me. And I accept that free gift of salvation. My friend, by believing on Christ, you can be saved. And know for certain that you have eternal life with him. For the believers here this morning who are struggling with different things, who have different problems that they've been facing and may struggle trusting the Lord today, think of the big picture of our Christ. Think of the big picture of our Messiah who came and died for you so that you might live. And if God can use all that for his glory, can he not use your struggles and your trials for his glory too? Father, be with us now as we deal with you. May we submit to you fully knowing that you are the one who sees us and knows us. You know the end from the beginning, and we're thankful that you have a purpose, you have a plan, and you use people for your ends. In Jesus' name, amen.